Welcome to Radio KBPV, Tales of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village, a podcast about the history of southwestern Alberta, presented by Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village of Pincher Creek, a museum complex that documents the stories of Western Canada's agricultural settlement through the preservation of local buildings and artifacts among a six-acre park. Pincher Creek is a town of 3,700 souls in a vast rural trading area of some 3,000 rural dwellers. A vibrant region of rolling prairie, foothills, the Rocky Mountains, the Pecani First Nation, Waterton Lakes National Park, the Crow's Nest Pass, and the Upper River Watershed of the South Saskatchewan River Basin. Join us in this podcast where we present walking tours of our buildings and hear the stories of the farmers, townsmen, cowboys, mounties, pioneer women, politicians, chroniclers, miners, railroaders, and so many other significant histories of this particular corner of Canada. Well, hello and welcome back to Radio KBPV. This is Ranger Gord talking to you. This episode is kind of a, a redo, and or a do-over, or a mulligan, as we, we say. When we started this podcast, it was in July of 2019, and we had intended it uh, the podcast to debut on the same weekend as a planned tour that Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village was staging to follow a railroad route. Uh, or a former railroad route into the Rocky Mountains back from Pincher Station. Then it was a great afternoon. Uh, We had a lot of fun. And we did stage this in the uh, podcast debut at the Mountain Mill Church. And so people got to hear the podcast first while they were having their lunch. And that was all very nice, except uh, it wasn't the podcast that we had intended, or at least not the quality of what had been intended. And we have gone on since, and right now we're up and we're chasing the 50s and the 60s in our episode numbers in the podcasts. And uh, we thank everybody that has been tuning in. But uh, episode one and two still always bothered me. As you can probably guess, anybody that has ever done a podcast or if you've ever done one yourself, you start with not really knowing what you're doing. I was definitely starting with not knowing what I was doing, plus the pressure of, uh, of an event. Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village decided to enter into a podcast program. We had spoken with someone that was uh, going to consult and perform a lot of the technical uh, jobs. And all Farley Wuth and Ranger Gord were going to have to do was do the research and then sit down with the mic and record. Well... Of course, as spring comes along, very busy at the museum with our other programs, education and greeting people for the summer and such and getting ready for special events. And so the podcast, believing that it was falling into other hands, didn't really uh, receive a lot of attention. At a certain point, we realized that it just wasn't happening and it wasn't getting done. So with the power that comes from not knowing what the heck you're doing, we just sat down and decided to start doing it. Now, none of us had ever uh, gone in and registered a domain name or registered a podcast or, or even posted ever a single episode. I'd been on a few podcasts, but that was it. Somebody just stuck the microphone in front of my face and I talked. And I certainly had never edited one and never uh, sat down and actually had to produce and construct one. 
Well, I managed to get hold of a recorder. Farley and I sat down with our prepared scripts one day, and we recorded. I believe I recorded mine at home, and uh, I, I recorded Farley's bits uh, in the archives of the Kootenai Brown Pioneer Village. And so, yeah, we had the raw data and we put it together. But uh, besides the technical aspects and overcoming all of that, Farley and Gord were not happy with what we came out with. We really didn't know how to speak and how to talk into this microphone. And we hadn't kind of learned the aspects of what you need to do when you do a flub on the microphone. And as a result, we were backing up and starting over. We were doing a lot of ums and a lot of ahs and a lot of spaces and a lot of breathing at times when we probably um, should have been talking rather than breathing. So as a result, we got, a, we got the podcast out. <laughs> I think we posted it overnight, uh, the night before the tour. So we got it together and everything was really happy, but... Uh, I wasn't happy with what we had produced. And one unhappy result that came out of it was an early uh, uh, listener came on and didn't like our podcast and gave us a one-star review on the Apple Podcasts. And I'll tell you, in the podcasting world, you do not want to get one-star reviews. I guess I wanted to come back into this software, which I have since learned quite a bit about how to do how to take the breathing parts and the dead air, and even how to eliminate the ums and ahs that we all get when we, we speak in public. So this is a, uh, a redo of the, uh, the original two podcasts, and I've slammed it together into one omnibus episode. Since uh, this is uh, March 26th of 2020 and we are in the middle of the COVID-19 epidemic, well, we all find ourselves with a lot of time on our hands. We're going to sit down, or I've sat, sit down and I'm going to look at this software and we're going to remaster this Rail Tales episode of Kootenai Brown. So we're going to make one episode out of two and I'm also going to add in our Caboose Tour. One of the things that we have done with this technology, if you don't know of it, uh, kootenaybrown.ca slash Pioneer Village, you can do an actual audio virtual tour of the entire village without having to go there, which is a boon in, during an unprecedented crisis like this because obviously our museum is closed to the public. We can't allow people to come in like 95% of everything else in the countryside around the world but we all ha we're all lucky we live in a time when we have these computers and these uh, devices at our our disposal and now you can click on the caboose or click on any other building in Kootenai Brown Pioneer Village see and hear this virtual tour and I hope that you do so I have uh, putting in that caboose tour we'll see how it goes and thank you once again for tuning into this and I hope that we get a much more satisfactory result. So with that, all aboard. All aboard. The Canadian Pacific Railway Caboose, number 437349. Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village has no solid order in which you must tour in the village, but most visits do begin 
with the caboose. In here, you can learn all about Pincher Creek's very unique relationship with railways. Why is it unique? Unlike other towns in Western Canada, Pincher Creek's founding predated the arrival of the railway industry by a full generation. Still, despite its size and success, the town remains one of the few prairie settlements that has never had a direct rail connection. The absence was not from lack of trying, as town boosters struggled to bring tracks into the town. Their struggle remains a controversial chapter of local history. Extending from Lethbridge, the Crow's Nest branch of the Canadian Pacific Railway was built through the southwestern corner of the Canadian prairies during the years of 1897 to 1898. By that time, Pincher Creek was 20 years old as a community, with a settled population and an established businesses. What's more, some of the town's founders had even secured land in hopes that a looming railway might enhance their speculated property values. CPR was well aware of land speculators and wished to control its own lo local real estate development to help pay for the construction and operational costs of the line. In that vein, it chose to bypass Pincher Creek and establish a community just 2 miles or 3.2 kilometers away from the main community. That point was dubbed Pincher City, later Pincher Station, as it is known on Highway 3 today. Now, Canadian Pacific, or the CPR, offered state-of-the-art access to market grain, cattle, and other agricultural products. The railroad also improved product offerings for merchants, provided passenger service to the community, and brought new settlers to the gates of the town. Homegrown dray services of Teamsters were employed freighting goods between Pincher City and Pincher Creek, and coachmen were engaged by the hotels to ferry their guests to and fro from the train depot. But being bypassed by the railway, physically ignoring the central settlement, was a huge embarrassment to town boosters. Local residents never forgave the CPR for their slight, and an intense rivalry was ignited between the local pioneers and the railway giants. For 20 years following the CPR's arrival to Pincher Station, early civic leaders lobbied to have the company's line rerouted into town. They also approached more than a dozen other rail conglomerates that made tentative plans. Some were, these efforts were accompanied by surveys and railway beds even. But all of these efforts fell far short in actually laying steel into the streets of Pincher Creek. Of these initiatives, only the Kootenai and Alberta Railway, the K&A, was successful in actually building and operating a competing line in the area. An 11.8 mile or 19 kilometers route traveled southwest from Kendery Junction, which was just west of Pincher City, connected the CPR main line to the coal fields at Beaver Mines. The KNA was the only non-CPR line that was completed in southwestern Alberta. Efforts to attract other railway companies were cut short by the First World War, when a shortage of iron, economic doldrums, and subsequent changes in transportation needs made the KNA obsolete. Now to talk about the caboose. The unique design and role of the caboose rarely changed in over a century. As the final car on the train, caboose provided a home for traveling train crews, conductors, brakemen, and relief engineers. From the high perch above the normal sightline, trainmen were responsible for monitoring the unit's progress, 
and safety in communicating any issues to the engineer in the locomotive. Spotters could use the rope above that activated a bell system in the locomotive and the spotters could also impact the braking system on the locomotive which would alert the engineer to stop the train. The benches converted to beds for the crews to sleep when off duty with bedding stowed in cabinets beneath the riding perch and tools inside the closets and such for emergency work such as removing ice from switches. Regular passenger transportation on the CPR's Crow's Nest branch was discontinued, supplanted by automotive transportation in the 1970s. The CPR line is now purely a freight route, and even those operations are rapidly evolving. Caboose 43749 was manufactured in 1946 and donated by the CP Rail to the village in 1990 after its decommissioning from active service. Since that installation, the CPR and other Canadian rail companies have discontinued the use of the caboose on active trains. An entire generation has grown up having never seen a caboose in everyday life, making this display a vital memory to preserve. Corporate markings of the 1970s such as the Arrow logo, along with the very vivid colored paint schemes, made CPR rolling stock very distinct on railways across North America in the late 20th century. Now to talk a little bit about some of the telegraph equipment. The railroad brought instantaneous communications with the outside world. Telegraph lines accompanied the Crow's Nest branch in 1897, giving southwestern Albertans a way to communicate with faraway relatives and businesses. The station agent sent messages by use of the Morse code, key and receiver, and decoded telegrams for incoming messages for personal delivery. Even after telephones came into wide usage, the railways continued to operate internal communications by telegraph as late as 1980. Hello and welcome back to Radio KBPV. My name is Gord Tolton, Education Coordinator with Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village. Joining me in this podcast will be Farley Wuth, Curator and Archivist. Canada owes its historical place and confederation to the technologies offered by the railroad. Before the construction of railways, connectivity to other parts of the nation depended on waterways and overland trails. The Canadian nation as it was created in 1867 formed off the eastern seaboard, creating an established population base in the St. Lawrence and the Great Lakes. Owing to the vastness of the prairies between the Rocky Mountains and the lakes, Travel from Canada's centres was distant and slow. For the West to join and contribute to Confederation and catch up to Canada beyond fur trade passages, the key was to get on board with the most vibrant and modern technology of the times, and that was the railroad. It's quaint and romantic in the 21st century to think of the steam locomotive, but that in the 19th century a railroad connection was as futuristic and as desirable as a Wi-Fi connection might be to a modern-day millennial or a Gen Xer. With the completion of the Transcontinental Canadian Pacific Railway in Western Canada in 1885, the railroad connected many of the few communities that had existed, like Winnipeg and Calgary, and then went on to the Pacific Coast. Along the way, the CPR's existence also created towns like Medicine Hat, Regina, Moose Jaw, Swift Current, Brooks, and Banff, and subsequent rail, rail lines, companies, and branch lines would create the patchwork of cities and towns 
that exist on the Canadian prairie today. After a decade of operation, the CPR would set out to create a second transcontinental line running from Dunmore, near Medicine Hat, all the way to Vancouver, utilizing the lines of a different company and building an all-new branch through the Crow's Nest Pass. Chronicles of the Railway Industry in the Pincher Creek area presents a controversial chapter from our pioneer history. This community remains as one of the few Northwest Mounted Police settlements and ranching areas which never had a direct rail connection to it. This is a definite historical quirk, especially when one considers that the Pincher Creek area was established in 1878 as a uh, horse ranch for the Mounties. That's a full 70 years prior to the completion of the Canadian Pacific Railway main transcontinental line in 1885. Closer to home, the town was founded 20 years before the CPR second line, predating the arrival of the railway by a full generation. The Crow's Nest line of the CPR was built through the southwestern corner of the Canadian prairies during 1897 and 1898. So, what happened to Pincher Creek, which predated all of the railways in Canada by a number of years? To date, Pincher Creek, the town, has never heard a train whistle or the shunting of cars in its streets from the CPR or any other rail company. Well, that tale would be a little more complicated. The story would begin to the east of Pincher Creek with another railway company that we haven't mentioned and one whose initial short line was completed about the time of the CPR's last spike. In September of 1885, a 110-mile narrow-gauge railway line was completed at Lethbridge having branched off the CPR at Dunmore near Medicine Hat. The Northwestern Coal and Navigation Railway had one purpose, to ferry mine coal from the mines of the Old Man River to feed the CPR's locomotives. The mines and the railway were the initiative of the father and son venture capitalists, Sir Alexander Galt and his son Elliot Galt. Since the company would go through many corporate names over its short life, let's just simplify and call it the Galt Railway Ventures. Galt's original intent had been to extend their line to Fort McLeod from its dead stop at the eastern edge of the coulee at Lethbridge, to gain revenue from cattle shipping and onward to the mineral-rich Crow's Nest Pass and the Kootenai Lake country of British Columbia. The Galt Railway Venture tied up a government charter on the route, preventing the CPR, or any other company from building a route west of Lethbridge toward the Crow's Nest Pass. Surveys were made on the Old Man River crossing, but by 1888 the Galt still hadn't built a foot of track headed west, as they concentrated mostly on the coal and land concerns at Lethbridge and on connections to Montana. In 1892, the Calgary and Edmonton Railway Company extended its tracks to McLeod, though abruptly stopped some three miles to the west of town unwilling to build a bridge across the Old Man River. McLeod's boosters had to be content with freight and passenger service by wagon from the station of Macasto, and that connection obviously did little for Pincher Creek. As the Great Northern Railway in the northern United States ran deliberately close to the 49th parallel, pressure mounted for the CPR to do more. In 1890, the CPR surveyed the Crow's Nest Pass, but the Galds continued to sit on their charter preventing any further work westward. By 1893, the Gull Company was still small and were being pressured by the CPR, 
who are developing their own coal mines in the upper Bow River Valley. Facing shrinkage dividends and labor strife at its Lethbridge mines, circumstances revealed that Elliot Galt was not going to have the means to build that crow's nest line. What's more, the narrow gauge line from Lethbridge to Dunmore was going to have to be upgraded to standard gauge in order to meet its own contracts with the larger railway. What resulted was a lease of that line to the CPR itself in order to finance its own upgrade. From that also became a virtual surrender of Galt's coveted Crow's Nest Pass Charter. By 1896, the CPR was ready to push into the Crow's Nest Pass and hammered out a concord with the federal government granting title and mineral rights to 50,000 acres of coal-bearing lands. At the insistence of the farm lobby, the government demanded a concession. By the terms of the eventual Crow's Nest Pass Agreement, the railroad was mandated to provide delivery of prairie grain to market at the frozen rate of 14 cents per bushel or a half cent per ton per mile. That crow rate made history and reduced expenses for the farmer and created a boom time atmosphere in Western Canada. But even with its deep pockets, the CPR were not willing to build the high level bridge at Lethbridge and wouldn't do so until 1909. In the meanwhile, the new Crow's Nest branch would actually cross the St. Mary's River south of Lethbridge and thence across the Blood Reserve towards Fort McLeod. But the CPR would not bring their new line directly into town, instead bypassing to develop its own community at the new station of Haneyville, just a mile or so southwest of McLeod. That left two rival rail lines, the CPR and the Calgary Ed Edmonton Railway Company, just over a mile from each other, and businessmen feared that the CPR and the CNE might build a bridge, connect their individual stations, and leave the town of McLeod permanently isolated railwise. In fact, the bridge was constructed across the Old Man River, and that connection made in the summer of 1897. Well, the town of McLeod took the CPR to court, claiming that the existence of Haneyville contrave contravened the Crow's Nest Pass Railway Act. Town boosters sued, begged, pleaded, even offered to pay the CPR to build a spur into town. There was talk of a streetcar line to transfer passengers. Despite all petitions and protests, the CPR did not budge. Finally, the CPR was ready to move forward and build towards the mountains. From Haneyville, that line would run toward Pincher Creek. But then, recent history would repeat itself. The new Crow's Nest Pass was not to touch the corporate limits of the town of Pincher Creek proper. Instead, CPR developed its own town at a new site over two miles away. Adding insult to injury, the new station was named Pincher City. That punctuated the beginning of a long and very frustrating relationship of Pincher Creek with railroad projects. By the end of 1897, the line was just 12 miles short of the summit of the mountains in the Crow's Nest Pass. Pincher Creek was connected with Eastern Canada at last, but had a two-mile two-mile walk to take advantage of this connection. The railway giant chose to bypass Pincher Creek as it wished to control local real estate development to help pay for the construction and operation costs of the railway line. Although the line helped uh, to market agricultural products and brought in new settlers, the fact that it physically ignored the central settlement in the area became a, a sore point with many local pioneers. True enough, the construction of the Crow's Nest branch of the CPR did tra traverse the district and the line's use did forever change the local countryside. The line's arrival 
brought with it a new wave of immigration and settlers into the area. Neither the CPR nor any other local railway company came directly into Pincher Creek itself. The town has remained without a rail connection throughout its entire history, and this issue remained a sore spot with local residents for over a century. That first generation of post-railway pioneers fought hard a bit unsuccessfully to have those transportation connections secured. What follows is some of the documentation of that conflict. The CPR's choice of Pincher City. In the CPR's um, mindset of the late 1890s, there were rational reasons for building the uh, local line and accompanying stations elsewhere than through Pincher Creek itself. The company appeared uh, satisfied with the economic possibilities of the line running from Lethbridge, Alberta to Nelson, BC. Ranching and mining markets would open up for both, on both sides of the continental divide, resulting in the railway's revenue and the marketing and transportation business to, uh, to succeed. Yet there were costs to control and business advantage, advantages to ensure. Geographically, the surveyors had determined that the most direct route for the rail line would be at a, a point two miles north of the settlement of Pincher Creek. This choice also offered a fairly level approach to the, the otherwise transition to an increasingly high terrain. The alternative route directly through Pincher Creek also meant an elevation loss of 100 feet. This would have presented a challenge for the engineers given the elevation gains that the railway company had to make as it traversed west towards the mountain pass. But there are, were other considerations uh, uh, for avoiding the village. The, Kootenai, the Canadian Pacific Railway Company was uh, in the business of real estate as well as transportation and in terms of its speculation. Pincher Creek already had a history dating back some 20 years to 1878. Town founders and early settlers uh, already had taken up most of the lots and their surrounding properties. And these citizens were competitors to the uh, railway giant for land speculation. With less real estate uh, to acquire and develop in established communities, the CPR wanted to control the location of its stations and the corresponding real estate boom, ensuring a higher profit for the company as real estate management uh, was important. Such development uh, could only take place in those areas that had yet to see an establishment of a settlement. Therefore, Pincher City Station and its development could occur on its own land. Pincher Creek believed that it was being railroaded by the CPR route. The CPR's de decision never sat well with the people of Pincher Creek. Feeling ignored, a decades-long campaign for a rail connection of some sort was launched by the pioneers here. Either the li main line was to be rerouted, or a spur line into the village ought to be constructed. Initial lobbying took place during the constric construction period itself. Once informed of the surveyor's choice to bypass the settlement, the pioneers of Pincher Creek immediately tried to convince the CPR to change its route. A flurry of, letter, of letters bombarded CPR headquarters during the spring and summer of 1897, and they requested a meeting with the company's vice president, T.J. Shaughnessy, who addressed angry McLeod residents on the same tour over the same arguments over railway services and routes. This contention, contentious issue festered on for nearly another 10 years. During the spring of 1909, the lack of railway service in Pincher Creek 
was raised by our own Pinch Creek Echo. It was alleged that the CPR believed that it was supplying adequate service to the town by maintaining an express and telegraphic office here at, in town. Yet the Echo believed that the freight office was a requirement for both incoming and outgoing expenditures and merchandise. The ardent press supporter of this southwestern settlement concluded that it was up to the railway boomerang system that something be done decent for the Pincher Creek pioneers before the, it was compelled to do so by the construction of other lines, some of which were already surveyed right in the town. In spite of the good intentions of our local newspapers, these efforts apparently once again fell upon deaf corporate ears. In 1910, a proposal came from the Canadian Pacific Railway that the company officials seriously considered rerouting the, the Crow's Nest line from Pincher Creek to a point five miles further north. The rationale uh, for such a path was never publicly uh, discussed in any detail, but may have been chosen as a more direct route between Brockett and Cowley, two sidings along the CPR line. Municipal officials were not informed of these uh, proposed changes, but acted quickly in the community's defense once word had been publicly received. Pincher Creek Mayor James Scott secured blueprints of the proposed changes and called uh, a public meeting on April 16, 1910. The gathering enthusiastically passed a resolution calling upon the Member of Parliament, John Heron, to secure adequate railway service from the CPR on the present line when the new route was to be established. This time, local protests had an impact as significant improvements were made to the existing line and bridges in the area. Through this, uh, the C uh, CPR, their officials denied any changes to the route had been planned, at least along the existing line, and uh, they declared that it would be kept closer to Pincher Creek. Some 10 weeks uh, later, public speculation that the CPR was actively considering a spur line into Pincher Creek was again raised within local uh, circles. Observers had seen this company accumulate several loads of lumber at Pincher C City. Further speculation was called for the construction of an addition to the depot there and that a second, though unspecified structure, would be built adjacent to it. Locals thought that the preparations were being made for a Y railway intersection at a point just west of Pinterest City, and since the CPR was in charge of the work, it must be meant that a spur line was to be built into town. Informed public opinion then called for a railway station at Pincher Creek to be uh, built, most likely at the, on the Northwest Mount Police Reserve at the east end of the town. It was said that this uh, would be an ideal site and the station would be uh, situated at less than a 10-minute walk from the west end of the town. The CPR indicated that the town council uh, endorsed the route and it would have the right-of-way through certain property now known as the poultry ranch. Which property was uh, to be uh, used was uncertain, but the three survey parties were already at work when the public news of this new development broke. And it was thought that only a, another week's work, uh, survey work, would be needed before the grading would begin. Yet within a month's time, there was more uh, bad news. According to the Sifton government, 
up in Edmonton. These plans for the uh, appear to have been put on hold due to the protests of, uh, of the Alberta Railway and Irrigation Company, which was playing a local railway system of its own. Locals were once again disappointed that a railway connection appeared to be as elusive as ever. After construction of the high-level bridge in Lethbridge, an alignment of the CPR line north of the Blood Reserve, McLeod would finally get its railroad connection and renewed status as a divisional railway point, connected with the Edmonton and Calgary Railway, and soon on a national route to the Pacific. A new roundhouse was built and siding trackage west of town was doubled. By 1911, boosters were talking about McLeod as a railway hub with a campaign to attract more rail routes to the town, with no less than 10 rail lines. Canadian Northern Railway, the Grand Trunk Pacific, Great Northern, and the Alberta Railway and, and Irrigation, as the Galt Railway venture was now known, all lobbied to connect to McLeod. These were optimistic times. Land values rose and speculators rushed to buy up worthless lots for cities that were bound to grow on the prairie as grain, cattle, and immigration were said to increase land values astronomically. For Pension Creek, the Galt Railway venture was working to connect the community with Cartston and Pincher Creek, planning to extend its St. Mary's River branch beyond Cartston onward towards Mountain View and jutting north across the Waterton River and tying into the CPR Crow's Nest Pass just two miles east of Pincher Creek. Again, shut out. Well, the Pincher Creek residents were apoplectic. Again, that little creek side town was being ignored by a rail company. The CPR already had failed to connect, bypassing the town and forcing residents, farmers, stockmen, and passengers to do their transport and business and shipping at the siding of Pincher City. Since 1896, the CPR had ignored all calls to build a spur into the main town. Promises from the Canadian Northern Railway and the Great Northern Railway to connect from the north and south respectively had proven fruitless. Other startup companies didn't get off the paper. Only the Kootenai and Alberta Railway, built to exploit the coal of the Beaver Mines District, actually went into operation, but also didn't approach the town proper. In being snubbed again, Pincher Creek residents saw conspiracy in the ARNI's close relationship to the CPR. Town administration didn't take the matter lying down. The ARNI had filed a survey plan and councillors agreed, argued that the bypass violated the company's own charter. To counter, the Pincher Creek Town Council passed a resolution condemning the ARNI transgression and called on Federal Minister of Railways Francis Cochran to intervene. To illustrate their seriousness, the town solicitor was dispatched to Ottawa to lobby and urged that both the outgoing and newly elected members of Parliament, Conservative John Herron and Liberal David Warnick, to petition their respective leaders. Despite a recent bitter campaign amid the landmark 1911 reciprocity election, Herron and Warnick put aside their partisan differences for the good of the riding. In early December, the minister ruled that the ARNI were indeed in conflict, and the company was ordered to resurvey their line and bring the Galt trains into downtown Pincher Creek. But that was December 1911. Though Pincher Creekers regaled, 
and waited to finally see a steel tracks come through their town, Elliot Galt and the CPR were involved in a crucial negotiation. With the new year, the CPR functionally acquired all ARNI and Galt assets, terminating both the Galt Enterprises and the possibility of a Carston Pincher Creek rail connection. In March of 1912, it was announced that the Rockefeller family owned Standard Oil had assumed the rights and charter of the Alberta Pacific Railway scheme that projected tying the busy copper mines of Butte, Montana with Calgary and onward to the Peace River. As with the Dominion Western, the route was once again to connect Cartston with Pincher Creek with a branch tapping into the Kootenai Mining District of British Columbia. But the name dropping in the paper ambitions didn't equal progress. Not a single tie was ever laid to ground. The perceived impact of railway competition. In March 1911, the Pincher Creek and District Chamber of Commerce took up the local uh, cause and established a committee to lobby for a rail connection. Members uh, uh, included a member of Parliament, Dr. J uh, Dr. David Warnock, Mayor William Doby, businessman Walter Jackson, and local farmer A.N. Mowat. And they were responding to a, a CPR communication stating that the company would not build a spur line into Pincher Creek until they saw competitive interest from another railway company. Taking a bite at, uh, at the issue, the committee approached uh, the Kootenai Alberta Rail Company for interest in providing a rail connection. However, the new uh, company could not afford the construction costs of an additional spur line. Six months later, when the Canadian Northern renewed its interest in Pincher Creek, it was said that the CPR officials in Winnipeg were closely watching the progress of the CNR in the Pincher Creek district. This, that stemmed from a rumor that the CPR spur line would connect uh, with the Crow's Nest branch west of Brockett and establish a station uh, near the flour mill on the North uh, Hill, then exit uh, by the west uh, to the South Fork Trestle. By Christmas 1911, uh, the situation is again stalled. Town solicitor Arthur C. Chemis reported that the town council through a series of meetings uh, held uh, with government and railway officials in Ottawa. The Minister of Railway expressed concerns about the age of the CPR's survey maps and therefore the company was withdrawing its plans for the line through Pincher Creek. Other rumours in 1914 spurred by so-called interest by the Western, uh, Develop Western Dominion Railway Company came to nothing. Local appeals to the Railway Commission. The next local appeal for a spur line uh, uh, came uh, a full year into the First World War. Mayor R.O. Allison and town engineer J. Woods talked with company officials in Ottawa, but no uh, construction uh, was ever materialized. Finally, in the summer of 1916, Town Council presented a brief to the Railway Commission of Canada setting what it thought was to be legally binding orders requiring the CPR to construct and maintain a spur line between Pincher City and Pincher Creek. The request was one of the uh, best organized lobbying efforts ever amounted uh, in this area for a spur line. Backed by Town Council, the local improvement district, affidavits from area residents, farmers and ranchers, 
uh, as well as livestock and grain shippers. This uh, presentation noted that 85% of the rail traffic handled at Pincher uh, City came uh, th uh, from either town or agriculture resources and uh, that the extra hardships of having a, the haul freight and passengers an extra uh, distance from town and the economic uh, uh, dis disadvantage of the remote access of the railhead. They lobbied hard for the r rail to come into Pincher Creek. Pincher Creek promoter uh, John Hillier argued strongly that better transportation facilities would bring an additional large area under cultivation, would redevelop industries and increase general business, resulting in an increase in traffic. His uh, colleague, Mayor, uh, Mayor Allison, uh, took the cause further by pointing out that the industry started in town have been crippled by the want of effective transportation and that further uh, development of industries were at a standstill pending the uh, settlement of the railway issue. The mayor was able to uh, pro provide several illustrations of this unfavorable economic situation. He noted that most of the large brick-making plant in Pincher Creek uh, had to be t uh, torn down several years earlier due to the lack of easily accessible markets further afield. On the North Hill sat idle uh, for some time a flour mill within an adjoining elevator. It had a capacity of 100 barrels and yet was not in production anymore due to a lack of shipping facilities. A Pincher Creek based creamery was operating with only partial capacity in 1916 due to there being no rail connections in Pincher Creek. A spur line would have allowed this business to accept uh, on an economically uh, profitable basis products from uh, uh, such southwesterly uh, Albert points as Cowley, Lenbrook, and Burmas. Only with the completion of a spur line, Allison concluded, would local economic situations improve. Compelling arguments these were indeed. The Railway Commission carefully deliberated over a 24-hour period, yet it could not rule in, uh, in favour of Pincher Creek's application. It was found that in terms of the Railway Act, it could not order the CPR to construct a spur line. Only a commercial or an industrial business could apply and that a spur line be con uh, constructed, provided that they had publicly disclosed financial resources to undertake such a project. The business would not uh, be responsible for the operation and the maintenance of the line. The ruling uh, noted that third parties, such as communities with grievances against the railway uh, corporations, could not apply to compel these companies to build uh, such spur lines. Most of these uh, early lobbying efforts for the Canadian Pacific during the uh, first generation of our railway history appear to have fallen upon deaf ears. Either the rail giant uh, fought the rail uh, route of 1897-98 or it was believed it was the econom most economical one to follow nor did it share with the same transportation concerns that uh, uh, the town believed in. As a result, Pincher Creek has historically remained one of the few major communities in southern Alberta not to have a direct physical link with the outside railway industry. For 20 years following the uh, CPR's construction after 1897, early civic leaders lobbied in vain to have the company's line rerouted through town or to have a spur line built the two miles down from Pincher City. 
This was the nearest railway station. Undaunted, local pioneers sought rail connections from computer railway companies that expressed an interest in accessing the district. In the boom time era before the First World War, half a dozen conglomerates made tentative plans for local railway development to uh, serve the town proper. Some of these efforts did uh, result in surveys and railway bed construction, but never uh, actually saw a train in the area. Finally, the uh, artificial land bubble burst, picked up by the realities of prairie farming, a glut of grain production, and arid uh, uh, subsequent changes to transportation needs. Finally, the advance of the First World War, whose demands made railway iron scarce and expensive place rail lines in conflict and with the larger companies. Only one of the fledgling companies was successful in building and operating a line in the area, if briefly. The, uh, this, was the Alberta, this was the Kootenai and Alberta Rail Line, the K&A, that developed a 19-kilometer route as it traveled southwest from Kenderi Junction, west of Pincher City, to the coal fields at Beaver Mines at the base of the Rocky Mountains. Well, before we get off the CPR and climb aboard the Kootenai and Alberta Railway, why don't we take a musical break? And this is a song called Canadian Pacific. It was written by Ray Griff, a country music performer known worldwide and born in Winfield, Alberta. And this version in particular is sung by George Hamilton IV. Canadian Pacific I rode your ocean liner to Newfoundland Where I made a living in an iron mine When I got my fill I went to Nova Scotia And I fished them salty waters for a time Passing through Prince Edward Island and New Brunswick I could see them rocks and cliffs of solid stone Listening to the seagulls calling to each other Made me miss my darling and my distant home Canadian Pacific Carry me 3,000 miles Through the valleys and the forest sunshine of her smile Across the plains and rugged mountains Keep this wandering boy from harm Canadian Pacific Take me to my baby's arms The Atlantic disappeared on the horizon And Quebec lay waiting for me down the track For a while I drove a truck to keep from starving In Ontario I was a lumberjack Manitoba and Saskatchewan and followed Where the wheat fields and the old Red River flows In the quiet hours your whistle on the prairie Touched my heart and set my memories aglow I could feel the nearness of her warm, soft kisses When you rolled into Alberta westward bound 
I worked on an oil rig to make some money For a ticket to the sweetest girl around Pushing on past Lake Louise in all its splendor Where the trees and rockies touch the sky above I got to British Columbia in heaven On your tracks I made it back to my true love Canadian Pacific Carried me 3,000 miles Through the valleys and the forest To the sunshine of her smile Across the plains and rugged mountains You kept this wandering boy from harm Canadian Pacific You took me to my baby's arms Canadian Pacific Carried me 3,000 miles Through the valleys and the forest Chronicles of the Kootenai and Alberta Railway The year was 1912 a time of hope and optimism and great economic opportunity in southwestern Alberta. New soil made wheat, oats and hay bound from the earth. Cattle and draft horses thrived in the lush foothills grass. In the mountains, steam whistles brought workers to their shifts as the nation consumed coal as fast as it could be mined. Towns prospered as people uprooted themselves from around the world to make this corner of Canada their home. And railway whistles broke the air of paradise. But few in Pitcher Creek were happy with the Canadian Pacific Railway that had refused to run rails down its dusty streets, preferring instead to develop their own property at their station of Pincher City. Town boosters held hope for half a dozen conglomerates whose promises filled the newspapers with their tentative plans to build a rival railroad. Some of these efforts were accompanied by surveys and railway bets, but only the Kootenai and Alberta Railway was successful in actually building and operating a line in the area. The K&A was a short branch, just a 19-kilometer route, 10 miles, that traveled southwest into the Rockies from Kandary Junction, west of Pincher City. The railway connected the CPR's Crow's Nest branch with its coal fields at the little community of Beaver Mines. But its timing was terrible. Soon Alberta would suffer an economic setback, followed by Canada's embroilment in the First World War. Before that war's end, the K&A's reasons for existence were cut short by economic reality and subsequent changes in transportation needs. The life of the Kootenai in Alberta was a brief blip in railway history, the only non-CPR line to have been completed in this area. But to the locals, a few archaeological remains and stories from local folklore fill us with intrigue and adventure of the story of its construction and short life as an active line. The K&A remains truly an exciting tale worth telling. Beaver Mines Coal Development. Completion of the Canadian Pacific Railway's Crow's Nest Branch in 1897 brought a demand for coal to feed its locomotives. Just a dozen miles out of Pincher Creek in the foothills, geological surveys had located a pair of seams adjacent to Beaver Creek that proved to be uh, of such steam-generating uh, carbon that it was worthwhile developing it. In 1907, the Western Coal and Coke Company, a subsidiary of the North American collieries and financed from, uh, with foreign money from Belgium, 
acquired property in the area to begin exploiting the two seams. For several years, the beaver mines coke mining industry boomed, but uh, experienced hard times as well. On the positive end of the cycles, increased market demand and ec economic upswing was experienced during the spring of 1913. As the number two mine remained in full operation, the number one mine, had been closed, which had been closed for 18 months, was destined to open again as soon as sufficient workforce forces could be uh, hired, and company officials put out the word that more miners were required in order to meet the full capacity. Local demands for coal slacked off during the fall and winter, but by April 1914, the markets were strengthened again enough to reopen one of the two mines for three days a week, and the miners continued to prosper for the summer. Production had increased sufficiently to warn, warrant company officials to consider the installation of a new coking oven at Beaver Mines to refine the carbon steam generating power. The historical ups and downs in the Beaver Mines coal industry also was marked by the number, by the number of men it employed at the mine. Northwest Mounted Police reports indicate that 25 men were employed in 1909. By 1910, employment had doubled to 50 men, producing 300 monthly tons of coal. In 1911, the Mounties reported a, another doubling with 101 men working at Beaver Mines. But there was a hitch. Without a railway connection, transportation of the coal market was stuck literally behind, behind the horse. The key to the future success would be to construct a viable rail link with the outside world. Establishing the Kootenai and Alberta Railway Company, the KNA was incorporated by the Legislative Assembly of Alberta on May 9, 1906, one of the earliest provincial acts of incorporation. The KNA's primary purpose was to construct and operate a rail link between the Crow's Nest line of the CPR and Beaver Creek to provide an export line for coal mined by the Western Coal and Coke Company. The KNA had optimistic transportation plans beyond that charter purpose. It hoped to extend further westward by crossing the North Kootenai Pass and travel south along the Flathead River in British Columbia to the international boundary. Promoters also speculated to run another line from the CPR into Pincher Creek, continuing southeasterly to Fishburn, the Kainai Reserve, Cardston and the Milk River Country. A third line was to travel north through the North Fork area and beyond to Edmonton and the Peace River District. All of these pipe dreams depended on potential coal markets on the American side of the border and in the urban centers of Alberta. The KNA head office was set up in Pincher Creek. All original shareholders, L.B. Ferguson, John Hendry, James Jeffrey, George E. McDonald, J.B. Seymour, and A.E. Woods were Vancouver business. There seemed to be no local investment. The capital stock of the corporation was pegged at $1 million that was split into $100 shares. The legislation stipulated that the gauge of the line had to be a full standard of 4 feet 8 and 1 half inches wide. The KNA had to abide to the use of Dominion land surveyors and adhere to safe and best practices in its railway construction and operations. With legislation and capital in place, the physical work on a promising and exciting railway project for southwestern Alberta could begin. To be surveying the uh, rail line. Initial surveys 
of the Kootenai Alberta Rail Line were undertaken during the summer of 1910. The laying of the grade stakes was commenced in October 18th at a point one mile west of Pinterest City. This point would host a Y rail intersection where the new KNA line would link with the almighty CPR. The point was henceforth known as the Kenderi Junction. A small t uh, company office was built at the junction from which engineers and surveys could oversee the construction work. The telegraph line enabled the installation of a telephone, a novel uh, setup for uh, those old days from the Canadian frontier. Several years later, the construction office was purchased by Fred Robbins for a mighty sum of $5 and moved to his uh, property in nearby city, uh, Pinter City, where Robbins and his family used it as an outhouse. Family members joked that the stately building, quote, must have been the only Biffy in existence to ever have a telephone in it, end of quote. From Kenderi Junction, the surveyed line uh, traveled the 10 miles southwesterly uh, to Beaver Creek. The route remained uh, out of range of the right bank of the south fork of the Old Man River and for the most part followed an easy uphill grade into the foothill. There are two challenges faced by the surveyors and the contractors. One was Lines Cooley, located a few miles southwest of the line's eastern start, and Mill Creek, which is two-thirds of the distance along the route. Both ge geographical features were noted for their deep canyons and steep slopes. Both gaps required the construction of massive wooden railway trestles to span the breadth. The initial survey work was reported in the local press, primarily the Pincher Creek Echo and the Lethbridge Herald. With the countryside in rapid development for farming and the well-established ranching industry flourishing, the economic potential of a new railway that could bring the area was uh, spoke, spoken of very favorably in the media. Adventures in Construction Within a month's time of the line survey, construction of the K&A line began at a feverish pitch. By early November, there were two teams of horses engaged from the Robbins Livery Barn in Pincher City. These beasts of burden were used over a six-week period to aid the grading work that had been started at that eastern terminus. Aiding the local speculation was the arrival in Pincher Creek of one Charles Fergie, the general manager of the Montreal-based Western Coal and Coal Company. Fergie let it publicly be known that his company was behind the financing of the line's construction. Only the onslaught of winter precluded any further work that season. Given the often empty promises of other railway giants, Pincher Creek locals had become concerned when the initial work of the K&A stopped due to the winter weather conditions. Railway officials informed the Lethbridge Herald that work on the line would continue as soon as the weather cleared up. Railway con Contractors and Personnel By March of 1911, a full contract in the construction of the K&A line was signed in Montreal. This was a legal formality that showed the influence of the Western Coal and Coke Company in the chain of events with the railway allowing the construction uh, to continue at full force. A wide variety of local and outside contractors and individuals all sought work with the uh, railway construction. We know very little about the transient workers. Charles Fergie, though a member of the board of directors or on the payroll of the uh, Kootenai Alberta Rail Line, played a significant role in the line's construction. As, a manager of, as the manager of the Western Coal and Coal Company, 
It was in his best interest to see that the line was completed as quickly and economically as possible. On a regular basis during the height of the work, Fergie was on site, he oversaw the progress, and his presence uh, here earned him uh, the title of being practically the head official on the line. Fergie's ever uh, faithful sidekick was T.B. Marion, who was retained as the chief engineer for the K&A line. His extended attendance on the, the construction work was even more frequent than that of Fergie, particularly between March and October of 1911. Supervision of the entire construction process of the line, including the survey, survey work, safety and construction staffing, and many of the nuts and bolts details of the line were Miriam's responsibility. And this spoke of why his work uh, brought him so here frequently. However, Miriam's engineering work was accompanied by, quote unquote, a staff and engineers who continuously were working on the ground, end of quote. But we have uh, no names, just uh, a few staff members uh, that here, and most of that stuff was lost to, to the pages of history. The chief subcontractor reported to Miriam was uh, the J. Tobin Construction Limited, an American uh, firm. Tobin was responsible for most of the grading dirt work associated with the Kootenay Alberta Railway, an often filthy job that required uh, that was required from the construction start to its finish. Tobin looked uh, after building up the rail bed, including the grading of the lane, uh, line when uh, the fill was hauled away from many high points and placed in those frequent low spots. It is said that Tobin, quote-unquote, was assisted in his office by his two daughters with very colorful names. One was named Short Change Kate, another one was named Trapline Jane. These names truly bespeak of the colorful nature of the Pincher Creek frontier back in the early 1900s. The firm contracted to build these massive uh, trestles was Ganson Smith. After working on the project was a contractor identified only as Larson, who primarily worked on the eastern portions of the line adjacent to Kendary Junction. One of the locals who attained work on the line's construction was John Babin, a brother of Mary Bucar, who is indirectly a relative of the Robert Lane family. The Lanes had ranched in the Bovey Lake area since the year 1900. Babin was instrumental in the construction of the Mountain Mill Trestle. Additional help came through the road building and grading efforts of Earl Cook, also known for his political endeavors. Cook's horse-drawn equipment was a common sight between Pincher Creek and Beaver Mines during those railway years. Another local contractor is Emerson Allison, who hauled in the timbers, timbers required for the trestles. The timber uh, was fur obtained from the Oregon coast. Allison had nine men and as many teams of horses working on the, uh, the railway line. During the height of the construction process, and this is the summer of 1911, over 160 men were uh, employed on the building of the line. Chief Emerson, uh, Chief Engineer Marion told investors and the press at one point that the number could have been increased to over 5,000 men should the company officials wanted the railway completed by that September. It was a deadline then. But it would appear that those numbers were greatly exaggerated and never realized. But the need for extra manpower uh, showed under pressure when the construction uh, officials were worried about the deadline, some of the deadline. A variety of trades and skills were required, including those who did the bedwork, those who brought in and laid the ties and the rails, 
and those involved, uh, involved in the railway construction of the trestles themselves. The men were housed in a temporary construction camps placed along the, the railway's uh, route. Initially, the camp was located at Pinter Station, line's eastern end, and it was only when the progress was made en route that the camps moved further west. Whenever possible, the camps were situated close to, to water sources. Camps generally included a bunkhouse and a boarding place for the men. It would appear that the company executives and engineers were put up in finer accommodations. Some of them uh, may have stayed at the King Edward Hotel in Pincher Creek. A stage line service under the name of the Alberta Livery Stables was uh, offered by local business partners Robbins and Chapu, who transmitted the workers back and forth uh, along the line. They left the King Edward Hotel uh, early in the morning and headed west. Each day the stagecoach returned uh, back to Pincher Creek leaving Beaver Creek at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. The physical nature of the construction work. The physical work in putting in the uh, Kootenai Alberta rail line was both difficult and dangerous. Following the completion of the survey work, crews had to build up and grade the beds. This was dirty and hard work as the hill had to be removed and uh, brought in to make the rail beds as level as possible. The laying of the ties and the rails were uh, involved heavy lifting and record precise measurements and placements in order to ensure that the tracks be perfectly lined up. 60 pound steel rail was used, perhaps considering the railway construction circles to be lightweight. Yet it was thought uh, to be heavy enough to, uh, to withstand the planned traffic and company officials noted that the heavier steel could be installed should the traffic even become more frequent. Even with these, uh, the use of horses and modern tractors and scrapers, the construction work was demanding, dusty, and time-consuming. 150 teams of horses were used regularly during the grading work itself. 20 cars of timbers arrived here in May of 1911, but this was only a quarter of what was needed. Such large timbers, difficult in of themselves to be handled, would have to be used for the, both the rail lines and the two immense wooden trestles required uh, along this route. Accidents were a real concern. In spite of the best intentions of both the rail company as well as its workers, the line's construction was not without its serious accidents, resulting in the loss of lives. Two of the more epic accidents were recorded in the local and regional press, providing the public with some concerns in regards to railway safety issues. The first such instance occurred in early June 1911, when a teamster's back was broken, resulting in his untimely passing. The fatality took place at Pincher City. James Elliott, who had come up from Idaho to work on the Kootenai in Alberta, received his injuries at the grain elevator at Pincher Station. The story goes that he had been hauling a load of baled hay to the elevator and had gotten caught between the load and the top of the door. He was taken to the Memorial Hospital in Pincher Creek where little hope was given for his recovery. The hay that which Elliot had been hauling was to be fed for the teams of horses working on the K&A Railways construction. Delays in construction. Following the line survey and construction start at its eastern terminus, the Kootenai Alberta Railway ran into only a few difficulties in purchasing the right-of-ways for the route. Ranchers and landowners held out for the highest possible price for the land and negotiations be, uh, with the rail companies proved to be somewhat tougher than what had originally been expected. 
However, by early April 1911, most of the land acquisition seems to have been successfully resolved. The only exception in, uh, to the right-of-way resulted in one claim being taken to arbitration by the summer, during the summer of 1913, two years after its construction. That, that the parties agreed to argue the dispute in a hearing appears to have prevented it from uh, delaying the construction of the railway itself. Local ranchers Collie Buchanan, Peter Hansen, and John Main grieved that the railway crossing their lands uh, sought additional compensation and are awarded uh, a, a compromise settlement of a combined award of $10,500. The parties reached the, the settlement shortly before the uh, hearing began. The hearings were booked for the Arlington Hotel in Pincher Creek. The press and the public, however, were disappointed that it was not to be a formal hearing after all, hoping for another truly frontier brawl. In an ironic twist of legal fate, however, it was interesting that, to note that lawyer Arthur Chemis, who uh, uh, represented the Kootenay Alberta rail line in this dispute. In most of the uh, matters, this local fellow had taken a very pro Pincher Creek stand, representing the community in legal fights with other rail railway giants. The issue of the completion date had determined the construction period. Early speculation indicated that the rail line would be completed by August 1911. Company officials wanted the early completion date, and under uh, time pressure from the Western Coal and Coke Company, were eager to exploit the new marketing access. Within a few weeks of the construction start, there was confusion about the uh, impending deadline. Some, some company officials had hoped uh, to meet the late summer objectives, but the others were quickly to push it back by another two weeks. By the time of the close of the 1911 construction uh, season, Considerable tracks still yet had yet to be laid. Yet the Kootenay Alberta rail line still was unfinished. It was not until the uh, late May of 1912, the following spring, that the uh, engineering and construction crews had completed all facets of this frontier line. Sidings, a unique feature on the KNA line. The railway was uniquely designed in that it had fewer sidings attached to its route than other comparable lines. History has recorded that the only one constructed was that at Lang's Siding, located three quarters of a mile east of the Coulee by the same name. Here local wheat was loaded on grain cars when the line was in operation, and this undoubtedly pleased company officials as it diversified the line's use and its economic value. Some of the early local pioneers who utilized the siding for shoveling their grain onto railroad cars were George Chamberlain, Robert Lang, and John Lettingham. As many as 32 pioneer ranching families from the Bovey Lake District may have utilized this nearby siding for crop or livestock marketing. Railway trestles were a challenge. In many ways, the geographical conditions facing the con construction crews for the Kootenay Alberta rail line to beaver mines were contradictory. In, in spite of traveling westward into the foothills, the overall terrain was noted for its gentle uh, features. Yet, even those portions of the track that went through the hilly areas truly were blessed by relatively easy grades. For the most part, few geographical challenges faced the, the engineers, surveyors, and laborers along the route. There were two major exceptions, however. These uh, made the route very memorable geographically, and these were the two wooden railway trestles for which the Kootenay Alberta rail line 
truly became feared. The route had across two major watersheds, Lanes Cooley, located just southwest of the line's eastern terminus, and further west at Mill Creek. Both of these provided special terrain and construction challenges to overcome the completion of the line. They were significant engineering feats in their own right and were claimed at the time to be the longest wooden railway trestles on the Canadian prairies. Langs Cooley. The first trestle over Langs Cooley posed special considerations. The line's route had to stay far enough south to avoid the river valley of the South Fork, yet not go so far south as to lead it to the more rugged of the foothills. Crossing the Cooley was the only logical route to follow, but as was documented in, a, in an old photo possibly taken by local rancher George Cox shortly after the trestle's construction, the eroding watershed not only left Cooley that often changed courses at near right angles, but developed a set of new banks that were high and steep, and the trestle had to leave an opening for the water flow below. K&A engineers settled on a trestle of wooden fabrication, believing this method to be the most economical yet sturdy option. Initial plans called for a structure to be 165 feet in height, yet the completed struck trestle was much more massive, measuring an astounding 203 feet high. Locals claimed it was the highest wooden railway trestle in Western Canada at that time. Its length was noted as being more than 60 spans with measurement of close to 30 feet to the span. Seven spans were required to bridge the water opening below. At least 40% of the spans required extra bracing. Archival images speak a thousand words. The trestle was a most eye-catching structure indeed. Another unique feature about this crossing was the use of the place names to identify it. Most people have known the area as Langs Cooley, a name that has withstood the test of time. But some early press reports also labeled this deep canyon as Craig's Cooley and also as Lee's Cooley. It would only be from description of this geographical feature that one could determine that the names all refer to the same spot. Geographical features often are named after people associated with it but it's likely that this coulee currently is named after the Robert Lang family. But it's equally interesting to find out what role Craig and Lee played in all our local history as well. Construction of the Mountain Mill Trestle. The proposed trestle over Mill Creek posed an even more difficult challenge in terms of its terrain and weather conditions. The most logical spot for the railway to cross this deep canyon with its steep cliffs was at a locality known as Mountain Mill. This tiny settlement had dated back to 1879 when a major logging operation was established there. Also in place at this important crossroad was the Mountain Mill Presbyterian Church. This well-utilized and picturesque building was constructed three years following the congregation's 1903 start, predating by the, the arrival of the railway by a full five years. But official plans for the high trestle called for it to cross the canyon at precisely the site of this nice country church. Thanks to the generosity of one of the trestle contractors, a solution soon was at hand. Historical research has shown that the Grant Smith and Company arranged at its own expense, expense to have the, a new concrete foundation constructed for the church and to have the structure moved to its new location. This was several hundred yards 
to the south of its original location, and the completed trestle dwarfed the place of the church at the floor below. The Mountain Mill congregation was pleased with the contractor's generosity, but not so satisfied with the subsequent inactions of the Kootenai Alberta rail line itself. Starting in 1913, church officials uh, made re repeated requests to have the company keep up its right-of-way payments as trestle uh, activity ran through the church property. Although some of these uh, records were not and transactions were not complete, there is no uh, written indication, no recollections from local oral traditions as to how many of these payments were ever made. The financial problem was that the rail company ran into World War I financial problems, and these were the reasons for the, uh, the payments not being made. The community relations of the Kootenai and Alberta Railway obviously were running amok. Construction of the Mountain Mill Trestle began in March 1911. Because of the dirt uh, removal required, grading operations on both sides of Mill Creek were known to the company and its workers as the deep cut. Initial uh, plans by uh, Gansk and company called for two steam-powered uh, shovels to do this heavy dirt work, but as uncertain how this new technology fared. Within a few weeks, they had been replaced by two massive graders that were pulled by 16 mules apiece. This appeared to get the dirt uh, work done, but there was con uh, were continuous challenges due to the cuts filling up with uh, water. The extreme grades of the camp of the canyon slopes made the, the work very dangerous and there was a danger of the uh, equipment and men falling you know, to the canyon floor many feet below. By October, the actual trestle construction began. Rather than utilizing uh, concrete footings, wood pylons uh, were laid flat on the ground and these were favored as the type of foundation for uh, the entire structure. The trestle is also being constructed of wood, and soon a massive matrix was inching its way across the, the valley. At one point uh, during its building stage, the span uh, contained over a million and a half feet of uh, timber. Significant progress uh, appeared to be in the work. Although Gantz and company oversaw the railway's construction, it was actually Mirian who was responsible for designing it in, in its entirety. Windstorm disaster. A near disaster was about to take place with the Mountain Mill Trestle. As fate would have it on that traditional bad luck day, a strong windstorm blew through on Friday, October 13, 1911. More than a quarter of the structure blew over, thundering to the valley nearly 200 feet below. The ear-splitting crash could be heard a mile away. Fortunately, there were no reported injuries resulting from the massive crash. Some locals feared the overwhelming size of the structure, believing it to be very fragile. These individuals were not surprised to see the White Elephant Bridge blow over in one of the strong winds that frequent the Pincher Creek area. Many traveled to the site to see the destruction. Wishing to calm public opinion and ensure that the remaining structure was indeed safe and sound, Messrs. Dibble and Kelly, one of the contracting firms for the trestle, arrived on the scene within 48 hours with the promise of giving the bridge a thorough inspection. Within a week, a report had been submitted to Charles Fergie and L.B. Merriam. It is determined that the structure, and quote, as designed and built was perfectly safe 
and would undoubtedly carry any load that was ever likely to be taken over it, unquote. Their biggest concerns, however, were placed at the very foundations of the impressive beast. Concrete foot footings would have to be utilized to prevent another collapse, particularly if the soil showed any sign of movement. This report seemed to sit well with the chief engineer, Merriam, who approved the continued work on the trestles. Merriam did lament, however, about the possible public relations damage that had been caused by the press reports on the collapse and by what he considered to be unfounded rumors in regard to its safety. By the end of October 1911, he had spoken to the Echo, expounding his virtues in nearly quarter century as an outstanding engineer. Merriam also noted that the plans for the mountain mill trestle had been approved by the railway department of the Dominion government and that it virtually met the standards used by the K&A's competitor, the Canadian Pacific Railway. Work did recommence. The impressive trestle completed in early of 1912 with cement footings and a massive wooden matrix stood proudly over the mass of Mill Creek Valley. Its height reached 198 feet. It had 80 spans, each of which measured 30 feet across. Upon completion, area pioneers claimed that this structure was the longest wooden railway trestle in western Canada. Similar in design to that of its Lang Cooley counterpart, this one too boasted a system of seven spans bridging the open gap over Mill Creek below. Many of its spans also had additional bracing, thereby securing the structure. It also made a very visually memorable matrix, an image that obviously caught the attention of George Cox. He too took a black and white photo of this trestle after its completion. As eye-catching as the structure was, little did he know that his sister Millicent, known to her family and friends as Millie, was about to have her own adventure, way up on top of those wooden spans. A Mountain Mill Tragedy the second fatality to take place during the construction phase of the Kootenay and Alberta Railway occurred in March 1912 when a worker fell off the wooden trestle at Mountain Mill. Andy McLean had been working as the bridge contractor for one of the, the uh, main contractors, Dibble and Kelly, for several weeks leading up to the accident. Early one Sunday morning, McLean had been removing some of the false work under the big deck span of the trestle. He had been standing on a 12 by 12 beam when he slipped and fell to the rocky valley some 54 feet below. He survived the fall but was critically injured. Fellow workers loaded him onto a rig in order that he could be brought to the Memorial Hospital in Pincher Creek, the closest medical center. Unfortunately, the poor fellow passed away before the party reached town. He had no family locally, the closest relatives residing in Ontario. The ongoing adventures of the Mountain Mill Trestle. Those impressive stories of the soon not to be forgotten trestle did not end with its con own construction. They continued during the, uh, those brief years of railway usage. When the first train inaugurated the Kootenay Alberta rail line that spring of 1912, the crew took special precautions on the Mountain Mill Trestle. On reaching the structure, the engineers started the train very slowly, dismounted, and let the train cross. The firemen, already positioned on the opposite end of the railway trestle, caught the train and waited for the engineer. This was done to test the safety 
of that very precarious wooden railway trestle. Throughout its brief yet flamboyant history, the Mountain Mill trestle continued to frighten many a train crew on the Kootenai Alberta rail line. Many feared that the height of the crossing, while others had concerns of the wooden nature of the structure. Others were particularly frightened of the potential dangers caused by the frequent high winds known for southwestern Alberta. Local folklore indicates that with most crossings, particularly those when the high winds were blowing, the train would stop at one side of the trestle and let the crew off with the exception of the engineer. The crew would then walk across the trestle and rather than take a, train, a chance with the train itself. Once across, the train would uh, go through the, the mountains and the hills and the crew would get back on for the remainder of the trip. As a young adult, Miss Millicent Cox also contributed to those wrestles, uh, tr trestle adventures. Millie decided one nice uh, day to organize a picnic with several of her friends. Uh, uh, the top of the trestle, likely noted for its panoramic views, was chosen as the location for the, this feast for the appetite and the eye. Adventure was close at hand, for no sooner had the happy party eaten the lunch and disembarked the wooden matrix than a runaway flat car went speeding eastward over the now unoccupied tracks. It had become disengaged at Beaver Mines and had uh, traveled at an increasingly rapid speeds over the slightly declining elevations to the Kenderi Junction 10 miles further distance. There it had come to an unceremoniously stop, lightly uh, leaving some more uh, views for the perils of railway picnicking. The outdoor adventurers had just missed a disaster ending through their own picnic. Short history of the rail line usage. Once the Kootenai and Alberta rail line commenced operation, it was fortunate to have some of its own equipment and dedicated staff. Local history indicates that the company owned one locomotive, a Montreal-built unit dating from 1913, which was used to pull coal cars from Beaver Mines. Years after this line's closure, the ever-proud locomotive was used by the Lethbridge Colonies Limited at its number eight coal mine until it closed in 1957. It was used again between 1960 and 65 at the Lethbridge Collieries Shaughnessy operations. The locomotive was acquired as a museum piece by the Mid-Continental Railway Historical Society based in Wisconsin. The locomotive engineer for the KNA was Ed Joyce, and one of the firemen uh, who accompanied on many of a return trip to Beaver Mines was Ernie Liddell, uh, who lived into the 1960s. With the line's completion, the route was used extensively in uh, order to uh, market coal resources mined at Beaver Mines. The annual reports of the Northwest Mounted Police uh, reported uh, how the coal production increased once the KNA Railway was uh, completed. After the railway uh, uh, arrived in 1912, a new link, the new link improved conditions to employ 164 uh, miners and there was an annual output of 70,000 tons of coal. During 1914, production had fallen slightly but was still going on relatively strong. There were 138 men who had jobs in the mines and it saw just under 40,000 tons of coal mined. The first year of the First World War, however, 
soon spelled doom for most of the co-extraction at Beaver Mines. The mines had closed down, little hope of significant production in the near future. During the coal mining era, the settlement of the Beaver Mines also boomed. The residential area included up to 100 company houses plus many privately owned dwellings. The business district boomed with a thriving blacksmith shop as well as two livery barns. During the Christmas season of 1911, the Beaver Mines post offices opened for the first time. Set up in Tappy's Hall, it treated twice weekly delivery service and was well appreciated by local pioneers who lobbied hard for local postal service. Previously, the nearest postal outlet was in Pincher Creek itself, some 12 miles distance and this had caused uh, much inconvenience to the uh, Beaver Mines pioneer. Further good business news came about two and a half years later. Beaver Mines featured a large hotel, complete with a dining room. The hotel's grand opening in March 1914 was one of the biggest social events of the year, and it was well attended by the large number of locals from the uh, coal mining settlement. The gathering included complimentary bar service, a supper, and dancing. Much of the hotel's business, lodging, food, and drinks, were expected to be from the local mines and their miners. Beaver Mines Business District expanded again that July when Harry, Harry Drew, late of both Pincher Creek and Coleman, reopened a meat market in Beaver Mines that had been previously owned by Francis Chapu. This community was serviced by two rural school districts, Cofield School, which operated from 19... 1909 to 1962, continuously for over half a century. The Beaver Mines School District offered classes from 1914 to 1922 and was reopened for several years following 1938. Coal mining had made Beaver Mines an often prosperous settlement. The CPR station at Pincher Station near Kenderi Junction reported in 1913 an average freight business of $25,000. Much of this traffic was attributed to the hauling of the coal that 10 miles uh, to Beaver Mines. The Beaver Mine, the Kootenai and Alberta uh, rail line was also used for marketing local agricultural product and it was a busy route that thrived economically. Yet its history was short as the outbreak of the uh, First World War precluded any continued success. Early on in the war, the coal mines had lost their contract with the Canadian Pacific Railway Company and subsequent traffic on the Kootenai-Alberta line was drastically cut. Predictably, the bad economics of the war permanently stalled any talk of building the rail lines further along or expanding it. Three years later, in 1917, the company officials and the Dominion authorities decided to terminate the line. The steel tracks and wooden ties were needed for the war effort in France and were torn up shipped to Europe and put to, uh, to use for a rail line there. The short line of the Kootenai Alberta rail line had come to a sad closure, but the line had made a uh, local economic contribution and its memory continued to be embedded within the historical folklore of this foothills community. Thank you for listening to Tales of Kootenai Brown Pioneer Village. This episode was researched and written by historians Farley Wood and Gord Tolton. This podcast is recorded and engineered by Gord Tolton. Episodes can be found at Apple Podcasts, 
Stitcher, Podbean, or any other podcatcher. Visit our website at www.kootenaybrown.ca. Kootenay is spelled K-O-O-T-E-N-A-I. Also, visit and join our pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more information on our museum, or even better, visit us at 1037 Beverly McLaughlin Drive in beautiful Pincher Creek, Alberta.